John 15, 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. In 2006, Katsuhiro Furusawa was dumped. His girlfriend broke up with him and he did what many people do when they're sad, when they're lonely, when they're angry. He went home and he read the Communist Manifesto. And in it, he drew a conclusion. He saw something, he had an insight, which is that being unpopular with girls is a class issue. So he started a group that has, made, has uh, continued since then. And the group, the name of the group translates to Revolutionary Alliance of Men that Women Are Not Attracted to. And every year, one of the key events that they have is a protest of Valentine's Day. I don't know that they're doing it this year, uh, but a couple of years ago, the announcement came this way. The blood-soaked conspiracy of Valentine's Day, driven by oppressive chocolate capitalists, has arrived once again. And so let's gather. Now, I read this, and these gatherings are in Tokyo. I think, I want to go to this thing. <laughs> I want to go and I want to see this. And it just seems fun to stand up and declare that, you know, we don't want to have to buy cards or chocolates just because, you know, uh, the businesses tell us to. And this week I was found myself wondering, what is it about me that reads this and finds this exciting? But the thought of standing in a store and picking out a box of chocolates for my wonderful wife <laughs> is not as exciting. What's What's wrong with me that that becomes the thing that I think, oh, this is interesting. And it made me think that there's something about Valentine's Day uh, that, that uh, there's a disconnect with our experience of it, whether you love it, whether you're neutral about it, or whether you hate it. Uh, Valentine's Day for Christians, uh, we have no obligation to celebrate in any formal way, and so you can hate Valentine's Day. But Valentine's Day is about love, and love is fundamental to Christianity. Today, we're looking at John's Gospel. Uh, you read John's Gospel, you read the letter that he wrote, love, central theme. So, so anytime love is celebrated, we should want a part of that. We should be excited about that. What is it about Valentine's Day that either we celebrate with such desperation because we think it's the greatest thing ever, or uh, we try to ignore it, or we're troubled by it? I think if you look at how Valentine's Day has evolved as a holiday, certainly in the United States, the focus is on romantic love. That's fine. Romantic love is good. Why would we have a problem with that? Well, it becomes the celebration, the, 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 the key moment where we're celebrating love, but we're celebrating a certain kind of love. And, and somehow we're communicating this is the ultimate love, the love that we all need, the love that we all want. And, and to the degree that that is part of what we're assuming then I think all of us should have some discomfort somewhere, even if you love it, even if you want that, even if you want to celebrate it, even if you're experiencing that, the thought that this is the ultimate expression of love, there's something that falls short because it can't be. Valentine's Day will always be uh, or have the potential to be disappointing or hurtful when our view is that the ultimate 
form of love is romance and how it's celebrated. And the reason I say that with confidence is because the Bible speaks about love, its value, the importance of celebrating it, but it talks about a different kind of love. The love would include romance and the expression of it, but whether or not you have romance, you can have a kind of love that Jesus in this passage describes as a greater love. So that is verse 15. I'm using that phrase, greater love. Jesus is talking about love, but he's not talking generically. He's not talking about love as, as we imagine it or desire it. He's talking about love as we typically don't experience it. And these smaller expressions of love that we see or that we do experience that, that are good um, are echoes of this bigger, broader reality that Jesus says, this is what I have for people. <laughs> Come to me, listen to me, learn of me, receive this, and then make that your life. And so in verses 12 and 17, the first verse that was read, the, the last verse that was read, it's commanded. It's not simply a suggestion, but we're told you need to do this. That's how important this kind of love is. So today we're not just talking about love in general as an idea, as a concept. We're talking about a greater love uh, because we need it. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. Yeah, I love, um, by the way, I'm Ren. I'm from Uptown Community Church, a reminder of who I am. We're going to be team preaching today. <laughs> but I love what Scott said. I mean, it's so important that we explode this idea. We undermine this idea that romantic love is the love that we really want and that we really need. And this passage helps do that for us. And one of the ways it does this is with the word that it uses for love. It's a Greek word here right at the beginning in verse 12 that maybe some of you have heard. It's the word agape, right? the Greek word agape. And that word is usually associated with God's love. You know, and, and it being God's love, it's the greatest love. Um, out of all the other loves in the world, there's a very famous book called The Four Loves that talks about the different words in Greek that is used for love, right? Eros, which is passion and feeling, or storge, which is parental love, or phileo, which is uh, friendship, or brotherly love. Out of all, and there are more than that, right? There's, there's love of food, there's love of country and patriotism, but of all the, all the loves in the world, both in the Greek, but especially as the Bible talks about love, agape is used for the greater, the greatest love, the kind of love that Jesus has for us, not just because of the object that we're loving, but because of from whom the love comes, God himself, his generosity, his kindness, you know, his highest level goodness comes down into your life and they can't be beaten. And so agape, most of the time, is talking about God's um, uh, superlative love. But in this passage, what's revolutionary, I think, for us is that agape here is not only used for God's love for us or Jesus's love for us. That word is actually used uh, to describe our love for one another. Yeah, that's right. So uh, this is not simply a philosophy that's being presented. Here's an ideal of love um, and be encouraged by it, but we're being told that there's a transmission. <laughs> this is the nature of God's love. And when God's love comes into your life, it, it shapes you. And that's not only meant to be lived out, but it's meant to be passed on. It becomes something that we receive and then we share, we, we pass on. So in verse 12, it says to love one another, that's, our, that's the commandment, that's the encouragement, love one another, as I have loved you. So it takes discipleship, it takes learning, we, we need to pay attention, 
but we're also meant to receive it and practice it and, and put it into habit. So, so there's an imitation, there's a pattern. We watch what Jesus did and we do it. But, but the transmission also happens through our receiving it, living in it, and then passing it on. Uh, and so it's something that we share. And, and it's interesting, actually, that the context of the verses we're looking at uh, is Jesus's last discourse with his disciples. It's this extended conversation he's having with the 12, his, his particular apostles, um, before he leaves them to be crucified. And what's interesting is Jesus himself doesn't write anything down for us. He doesn't write his own teachings or he doesn't write a testimony about himself. But he says in this broader teaching, he tells them, uh, after I've been raised, the spirit will bring to mind all that I said and taught, and then you are to be my witnesses. So this transmission is Jesus loving them and then calling them to love the world. It's actually quite remarkable that because the apostles were obedient, because they took this commandment and they weren't perfect, they didn't love exactly with the perfection with which Jesus loved. But having received his perfect love, they, they listened to him and they passed it on. And so they wrote about that love and they imitated it. And now we have the scriptures so that that, that love is passed on to us. But we have the same calling that we are to live and embody that we receive that love. But we go out in the world and we keep the command of Jesus to do it. And in doing it, the love of Jesus, which comes through the, the presence of the Spirit, but in and through God's people, means that, that in our generation, God's love can be present and transmitted, and it's transmitted through those who have received it, those who take hold of it, and those who are faithful to live that kind of love, to love others as Jesus has loved us. Well, let me unmute. Yeah, the, the 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 remarkable thing to me is that God, that greater love, that agape love, is experienced by us. God's love is experienced by us as we love one another. The bigger that that's how we experience God's love. And so then Jesus has to go and and define that love a little bit more for us. What does it mean to love one another as Jesus has loved us? And so he gets a little bit more specific in verse fourteen. Uh, with the principle. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays his life down for his friends. That he lays his life down. Love means that you're willing to give up your life for someone else in one way or another. That there, that in every Christian, there's a little bit of a martyr in you. There's a, there's a little bit of you willing to give up what you have. You're willing to sacrifice everything for someone else's good. And you're constantly scanning your life, the things that keep you alive. You're scanning your life for things that you can give away so that other people have more life. And by the way, that's how romantic love feels at its best. You're totally willing to give up everything for the other person. But this is telling us this is also how friendship feels at its best. That's how we should be dealing with one another. It's not just for people who are in romantic love, but it's for everybody who has a friend in the church. We get to experience this. In fact, you know, the Greek word here uh, is translated as life. As greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. That word life is, uh, it's not the word zoe, which means being or existence, our life. It's the word suke, which means breath. Translate also, it's the word used for your soul or your spirit. So that I use every one of my breaths I put on the line so that you can live. 
I put my soul on the line for you. Every breath that I take is not used for my benefit, but for yours. I give it up for you. Love is why, by the way, we wear masks. And I'm, I'm willing to give up a little bit of my comfort in my breathing so that you can breathe. Constantly giving that away. And that's how life should be in the world, that everybody is constantly loving one another by giving up their suke for others. Now, you want an example of this? I can actually take you to Valentine's Day. Uh, St. Valentine. You know, you, someone mentioned in the chat that, you know, it used to be a holiday that we celebrate uh, St. Valentinus. I did a little bit of research into his story. It has nothing to do <laughs> with romantic love. It has everything to do with giving your life away. He's a martyr. There are three stories in the Catholic Church that we can find three saints who are named Valentinus from about the third century. Uh, one of the stories of him, uh, one of them goes like this, that uh, there was a Roman priest named Valentinus, and at the time it was illegal to be a Christian to be a Christian sort of in public. And so he was arrested by the Roman emperor and he was put under house arrest uh, uh, with a guy named Asterius, who was a friend. He was an arist aristocrat, a friend of uh, the Roman emperor. And as he was lodging there with Asterius, Asterius had a daughter who was blind and who was sick. But Valentinus, because he wanted to give the love and the light of Jesus to these people who are putting him under arrest, he kept on talking about Jesus. He kept on talking about Jesus's love and his light and his healing. And Asterius, after a while, finally said, okay, God is the light. God is strong. If he can heal my daughter, I'll convert. If this God you're talking about can, convert my, uh, can heal my daughter, make her see, then I'll convert. But if not, I'll tell the emperor to kill you to bring up your sentence, no longer under house arrest, they'll kill you. So Valentinus put his breath on the line. He put his hands on the daughter's eyes, and with his breath he prayed. He said, Lord Jesus Christ, enlighten your handmaid because you are the true light. And she was healed. She began to see. He was transmitting the love that he had received from from Jesus, laid his life down, put it on the line for someone else, and God came through. And so, of course, Asterius, uh, his daughter, and his entire household converted to Christianity. The daughter could see. They couldn't deny it anymore. But when the emperor heard that Asterius and his whole family converted, he decided he was going to kill them all. <laughs> he was going to, he was going to, it was illegal to be a Christian. But once again, Valentinus, putting his life on the line, stepped in front. He said, no, 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 it wasn't their fault. All they did was receive the love and the power and the healing of Jesus. It was me. I, I did it because I prayed for them. It's my fault. So he stepped in front of them. And, and on February 14th, the Roman emperor beheaded Valentinus. According to one story, another, according to another story, he was brought to the gladiator games and was martyred there. But either way, he laid his life down for Asterius and his family and for the glory of God. There's nothing particularly amorous about that story. Pagans would at some point take over that holiday and they would say that Valentinus left a letter for the daughter uh, that was a love letter. And at the end, he signed it, your Valentine. But the love that was on view there is, is the love that we see here. Great, greater love is risking your life and breath for other people. That's the spirit of all love, the self-giving 
the model of Christian love. It's going to be inconvenient. A lot of the times you won't get any benefit out of it at all. You'll actually be sacrificing. But that's the kind of love that we're called to. In fact, I don't mean to be hammering this romance thing, but if in Ephesians 5, where husbands are taught to love their wives, the word that Paul used there, uses there is still agape. It's still transmitting the love of God, self-sacrifice. Husband loves your wives as Christ gave himself up for her. Love in the pattern of Christ who gave his life. It wasn't just that he had nice feelings. Is that their whole, the husband's whole life is given over. For me, that means my wife was sick with the second stick of the Moderna virus. And so it means that I had to stop watching Netflix and go make ginger tea. It means that I have to, I have to stop doing what I want to do, and I have to go do the dishes, denying myself every single day with every breath and every moment. And you say, that's nice. You're married. You get to experience it. You get to have that. Valentine's Day is so annoying because it always comes back to couples. But the point is, no, this passage is saying that everybody should be able to experience this kind of love from everybody else. It's not exclusive. It's just patterned that way into a marriage. But we should all be participating in this kind of laying down our lives love for our friends, for one another. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons I think that we need to, to really sit and listen, because Jesus is talking about something that is so compelling that we take hold of part of it, and then we miss the whole. And he's talking about something broad, something that applies profoundly to marriage and romantic relationships, but something that is, is profoundly beyond that to church communities, to friendships. Um, and, and therefore, there is a sense that Jesus is loving us. But he's also teaching us, and, and that teaching itself signals to us the heart of Jesus, even in this passage where he talks about a different relationship. Um, he says, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And so that's, that's what Ren's been talking about, that, that this friendship becomes the context that this greater love is expressed in. And, and you know, what would be typical in the ancient cultures, a king would come in and conquer, <laughs> And then you could live and be his servant or you can die. And so the servant basically had certain privileges, but, but you needed to keep the commands of the king. Now, Jesus is giving us a command here, love one another, hold to this radically. But, but he gives us the command not because he's in charge, but because he loves us. But the interesting thing is when he calls us friends, he, he's not saying we're equals because Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. He's not saying, hey, we're just a bunch of buddies. The remarkable thing is he is the king. He is perfect. He's unlike all of us in so many ways. And yet what we keep finding in the gospels is Jesus is gentle and lowly. He comes to us in humility. And so when he says, I call you friends and not servants, the remarkable thing is he's still the Lord. But, but his intention is not simply to boss us around. His commandments are out of love. And so in verse 15, he says, the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And it's that disclosure that Jesus is intent on making known is a sign 
that his authority is a benevolent authority. It's a good authority. You know, the, the nature of a, of, of a servant or an employee, a, a good employer will be kind, will treat them like a human being. But at the end of the day, you're here to fulfill a function. And so it's 8 p.m. and I want pancakes. And you want to know why I want pancakes at 8 p.m. when I just had dinner and uh, I'm already full and it's not breakfast time. Why, why should you make pancakes? Because I told you to make me pancakes. You're my servant. Um, that would not be good master boss employer, but it would be appropriate. But Jesus is saying, that's not how I relate to you, even though I'm your Lord. And you would be right to call yourself my servants. But he's saying, but I'm calling you friends because I'm not just giving you commands that suit me, but I'm, I'm making very clear uh, what will be life-giving, what, what you need to receive and how you need to live. And so he will explain it. And so part of Christian discipleship is to receive and to practice, but to, to learn. And when it comes to love, we all have a lot to learn. And we're told that there's a greater love. Uh, we will only learn it from Jesus. And so you can see the difference between how parents are meant to give commands to their kids. The children aren't servants, although, frankly, parents sometimes fall into that trap. Just go go get me something from the refrigerator. Why? Because I told you so. Um, we fall into that trap, but good parenting is not to be arbitrary, not to boss our kids around. And yet there have to be a lot of commands and rules. So you tell the three-year-old, you cannot cross the street ever at all without holding my hand. Now that rule is not arbitrary. Why? Because I get to be in charge. <laughs> no, the rule is there because of love. And so, so you explain that to the kid. <laughs> you explain to the three-year-old, it's important to hold my hand because that's what's safe. Now, uh, the three-year-old that's growing towards four-year-olds looks at the corner and he says, I'm observing lots of people crossing the street and nobody's holding each other's hands. And now you're telling me that I need to hold your hand. And so you explain, it's not because I'm trying to control you, but, but when you get older, you will be able to, to see and discern and make safe and wise choices. And so whether or not you can make that explanation, whether or not at, at some point kids keep asking the why question and you just have to cut them off and say, you know, because I said so. But that's not meant as a parent to be because at the end of the day, I'm in charge. But at the end of the day, I love you and you don't understand the nature of my love. And so just listen to me. And when that context is there, it makes it better than the kind of thing that we do with the kid, the three-year-old who's like, why do I have to hold your hand when I cross the street? And then we want to show them how smart we are. And so we say, well, okay, if you're so smart and ready to cross the street, solve this math problem. Uh, there are 15 teenagers on motorcycles doing wheelies down St. Nicholas Avenue. And they're a block away. And if you assume 300 feet in a block and they're going 20 miles an hour and it takes you four miles an hour to cross the street, how many blocks away does the motorcycle group need to be in order for you to safely cross? Oh, you can't answer that, so be quiet and hold my hand. See, that's, that's how we think as parents, because it's sort of, you don't know. But good parenting is recognizing they don't yet understand uh, things in motion and timing things. What they need to understand is, I love you. <laughs> I'm going to protect you. And that's what Jesus does to his disciples. The, in, in the broader context, there are things that they don't understand. But here he tells them, but understand, I'm calling you friends. That's radical. When I tell you, love one another, I'm telling you, you need to do for others what I'm doing for you. This is really important. It's not arbitrary. It's not because I'm the boss. It's because I am the Lord and I love you. And that changes things. Yeah, Scott, you, I think you just convicted me. Um, I don't know if I can go on to my next point because my parenting is all, all about 
getting my kids to do what I want them to do. I have treated them as servants and not as friends. I have not loved them as friends. Um, I, you know, one of the ways I think I would characterize it, um, now that you said it like that, is as, as including them. It's, it's, it's as simple as including them. That's what Jesus does. It's, it's the opposite of what we see in the movies where the person goes to their boss and the boss says, just do what I told you. You're on a need to know basis. And it just, it just drops them down a couple pegs because he's not sharing the plans. He's not sharing the heart and hopes and dreams with him. He's not including them in. And so as we think about how to love in the pattern of Jesus, um, I think one of the things that we need to do is to think about how we're including or excluding people. That's just laying down your life, but are you including people as your friends? I'll tell you a really good story real quick is, is yesterday I got a text from George Sarkissian, one of our elders, and he read an article that on the A-train there was someone who was attacking, violently attacking people on the A-train, homeless, attacking the homeless. And so George springs into action. He sends a text to Al Santino, to me and the elder, other elders, and says, what can we do about this? Can we contact the 34th precinct to see if we can help? And to me, that is love because he's taking a group that ordinarily is left out. Ordinarily, uh, you know, read an article like that, you say, that's so terrible. But he is springing into action. He's taking his life and saying, what do I have in my life? What do we have in the church? that can bring those people into our attention. How can we care for them? The world is tilting to the benefit of people um, who are on the inside. And it's, it's lifting up the other side of the table for people who can't reach. And there are always people on the other side that we can be thinking about and saying, listen, I don't want to keep you far as a servant, but is there a way for me to bring you in as a friend? Sometimes in our small groups, parents seem like they're on the inside. They're constantly having conversation about their kids. And when you have couples in those groups that don't have kids or they're singles there, they feel left out. And so maybe one of the moves in the pattern of Jesus including is to stop talking about your kids for a little while. Talk about something else so that other people can come in and participate in the conversation. The pastoral question maybe is if, if love is laying your life down for your friends, who are you including in that group of your friends? Is there anybody that you're turning from a servant who you basically are manipulating to get what you want? That's what a servant does. In order for you to include in your hopes and dreams and life, to bring them in as friends. And Jesus did that by including them in his plans, by sharing his life with them. And we ought to love others as Christ has, has loved us. Yeah, that, that inclusive piece is remarkable because it's not simply a principle, but, but it, it's what Jesus is doing as we're reading about him. What Ren was just describing is, as implications of what it looks like for us to flesh this out. The foundation of this is, is Jesus gathering these 12 and saying, I've brought you to myself and now I'm sending you out to welcome uh, people to enter in to this love, and it is quite remarkable. And so in verse 16, we find that there's meant to be a transformative component. When Jesus invites us, when he welcomes us to be his disciple, he is going to change us. He's going to renew us. So he says, I chose you, 
and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So Jesus isn't just teaching us about love. He's loving us by saying, when we join together and my life is in you, that life will start to uh, bear fruit in your life, eternal, permanent fruit. You'll, you will have a new kind of life. And that's what Jesus is offering here. And so, so one thing we do is we recognize what he's talking about and we try to imitate it. How do I learn to do this? Let me practice it. But the, the inclusive invitation is that we receive it. What, what he's saying is, I call you friends. Will you, will you come and be my friend? And, and an understanding of what Jesus means by that, which grows the longer we walk with Jesus, uh, the more we're transformed and the more it bears fruit in our lives. You know, here he says, there's no greater love than laying down your life. That's the kind of love we're talking about, a self-sacrificial love. I hope most of you find it at least attractive or appealing. You know, I suspect most of us want those kinds of friendships. We want friends that have our backs, friends who will lay down their lives for us. And while we may selfishly want people to do for us, we, we know there's something in the experience of having such conviction that I'm willing to lay my life down for others that, that there's something right about that. Most of us hear about this kind of love and, and we should want it. And it's appealing. Now, Jesus talks about this kind of love in various contexts. So for instance, if you go to Luke 6, he talks about his disciples when they love, what will be the nature of their love? Well, they will love their enemies. They will pray for those who persecute them. It's the same kind of love. He's saying you should have agape even for your enemies. What's interesting, Jesus doesn't say no greater love has anyone than this, that he loves his enemy. Loving your enemy is hard. It's not appealing. It's in fact something that maybe infuriates you that Jesus would ask you to do that and makes you not want to continue in that love. Jesus doesn't say the greatest love is love for enemies. He's saying the greatest love is to lay down your life for your friends. But he's saying enemies are going to try to make you like them. And if you abide in me and my love and you pursue it and persist in it, don't let anyone change you, but have that love be such that you are prepared to lay your down your life, not just for your friends, but for me, even in the face of an enemy. And the reason that's important to grasp is because that's the kind of love Jesus is saying he offers to us. One of the things about romantic love, now again, romantic love is good. Um, but romantic love is, is specific. And one of the dynamics of how most of us experience romantic love is desirability is a function of romantic love. I want there to be something about me that, that if you hadn't loved me, once you see me, once you know me, it will draw love out of you. My desirability creates a love that wasn't there. And, and that can be fine. But one of the reasons that romantic love is hard is because maintaining desirability is tedious. <laughs> so if I check 10, if there are 10 markers of beauty and attractiveness, and I meet nine of them, that's pretty good. But if I want to maintain desirability, what do I do with that one? <laughs> How do I hide it? Because if the person sees that and then sees somebody, the hypothetical person with all 10, well, then now I'm vulnerable. I'm, I'm not going to draw out the love from them that I want. I won't be able to sustain this. And, and the, the, the flip side of the coin of wanting a love that's based on my desirability is a complete insecurity that when people love us, we don't see it because we're so sensitive. Jesus frees us by using that language, I chose you. <laughs> it's not cold. It's not sterile. What, do you, what the Christian believes is that the love of God is not based on our desirability 
but on the character of the one who loves. It's not that we are so lovely, it's that God is so loving. It takes some ego work to say this is a greater kind of love, but when you go through the Christian life over periods of time and you see your moral failings, and you see that you thought I would be an asset to the church and now I can't do anything for the church. I thought I would glorify the name of Jesus and now I've messed up publicly and I've shamed the name of Jesus. If the love of God is depending on my desirability, you will not abide in his love. Jesus says, I call you friends, not because you're the kind of people I want to hang out with, but because this is the love of God. I have set my love on you because that's what I do. I love even my enemies. And in loving my enemies, some of them become my servants. And those who do, I call friends. And it's that radical love that he includes, not simply the valuable, the upright, the perfect, the moral, the upright, the religious. But he says it's the failure, it's the struggler, it's the alienated. That he includes us not because we will ever do enough or because he can make use of us because he's not a master in that way. He's a master because his love is so perfect that nobody else should be in charge of anything but this great Lord. He is the one who sets his love on us. And what we're told then is when we have that love and that becomes the love we live, we are to lay down our lives for our friends. And it will be challenging, it will be hard, but it will be rewarding. But the nature of our world is that we want our friends to lay down our lives for us. And inadvertently, our love is weak enough that over time, friends become enemies. We get into arguments, we get offended, and we put them aside. Jesus is saying, actually, if you do this, Sometimes you will be like me. You will love people who reject you. You will try to give to somebody who will persecute you. And you need to just recognize that's the nature of being a loving person in this corrupted world. Follow me in that. And I will strengthen you. I will bless you. But you will also find when you do that, sometimes you will love somebody who rejects you. But in your loving them, they will see something of this radically different, greater love. And that enemy may become your friend. We never know if that's the outcome, but, but lesser loves means your friends are always at risk of becoming your enemies. The love of Jesus says that you are now a friend of God. And if you live and abide in that love, you never know. Your enemies may become your friends and God's friends. It's that radical transforming love. That's what is available to us. Yeah, that was, it's compelling because I... I think one of the arguments that's being made is that this love can actually save the world. <laughs> that this love, if it's everywhere, if we're constantly giving it, but well, it's that vicious cycle that Scott's talking about is that we, we want this love, but because we don't think we have it, we're trying to get it from other people. And so therefore we're never giving the love. So nobody ever gets it. And because nobody ever gets the love, Nobody ever feels loved. <laughs> and because we don't feel loved, we try to get it from other people and then we're not giving it and we're not giving it. Nobody gets it. And just this over and over and over and over again. And the heart of it is deep down in our hearts. We don't really believe that we actually are loved. Wouldn't it be great if there was some friend out there that could love perfectly, that could lay their life down for us to make up for our shortcomings? to pour their life into us, to give us new life. And that is the promise of the gospel, to break the vicious cycle. So once and for all, we know 
that we are loved. We've got enough in the tank to give to other people. We've got enough suke. We've got enough breath. You know, one of the greatest places to learn about love is in Korean dramas. All kinds of love. But there's a Korean drama um, that I saw recently, and it was a bunch of friends who were dedicated to one another, and they went scuba diving. Now, these big tanks, and they, but they went so far underwater, and they went so far in depth that they started running out of air. And so they started panicking. They actually, these are best friends, and they started to take the mask, the breathing apparatus, out of each other's mouths and putting it in their own mouths and taking the air from each other because they all thought they were going to die. But of course, the music goes up, it's totally awful, and then a hero comes down. You don't know who it is, it's a mask, a masked person. And out of nowhere, instead of ripping masks off of everybody else, he takes his mask off and he starts putting in the friend's mouth. He's got enough air for everybody, and all they all come to him, and they, all of a sudden they stop panicking. And they finally start making their way up to the surface, taking turns, breathing, actually giving each other the apparatus from the hero and they make it to the top and they realize they've all made it and they're all full of joy. But then they realize the hero guy actually hadn't taken a breath in five minutes and now he's in danger. They're amazed at the sacrifice because he's the one who had all the air. And it strikes me that that is what Jesus has done for us. That the suke, he took his suke and he laid it on the line and he gave us of his life so that we can be filled. It breaks the cycle. You may not be lovable, but you are loved. If Jesus died for you, then you are his friend. And all of the love that we want, all the love we need is yours. You've got it. So you can finally take a look away from your lungs and start to look at the lungs of other people. Look at the life of other people and say, what can I give to other people? That's how we get transformed. Imagine if we were two churches that were full of people who did that. And then we loved so well that we turned the entire world into a place where people loved like that. Man, the world will be saved. And that's the love that Jesus has come to give us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your love is greater. It transforms. It's extreme. It costs you your life. And you call us to lay our lives down. But Lord, in the end, you've come for the salvation of the world. You've come for the forgiveness of sins and the righting of wrongs. And so I pray that as far as the curse is found, that you would increase your love. And that in your people, you would increase the joy in the knowledge that you have provided everything that we need for our life. We don't need to take anything away from other people to make us whole but you've died and rose again to make us whole. And as we unite ourselves to you, we have life. We are loved. I pray that you help us to share it. What grace you've given us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.